A few years ago, I stumbled across a blog. It's called The Honest Toddler. It's actually, it's written by a mom, not by a toddler, but it's written by a mom from a toddler's perspective. And uh, she, she submitted a, a chart that basically was a translation chart. So this is what a toddler means when the toddler says, I'm sorry. Okay? When I say I'm sorry, I really mean, I'm sorry I got caught. When I say I'm sorry, I really mean, I'm sorry I didn't run faster. When I say I'm sorry, I, I really mean, I'm sorry I didn't hit him hard enough to make him afraid to tattle. (laughs) When I say I'm sorry, what I really mean is I'm sorry you have no sense of humor. When I say I'm sorry, I really mean I'm sorry I didn't eat the evidence. You know, when our kids were little, we uh, quickly realized we didn't want them to say I'm sorry. We wanted them to say, please forgive me and I forgive you. Right? We wanted them to really learn and understand and embrace uh, the concept of forgiveness. And to say I'm sorry is just a, is a little bit shallow. But you know, that's a difficult concept to learn, not just for toddlers, right? It's difficult for adults as well. Luke chapter 17, Jesus was speaking with his disciples and he said this, be on your guard. If your brother sins, rebuke him. If he repents, forgive him. If he sins against you seven times a day and returns to you seven times saying, I repent, forgive him. And the apostles said, Lord, increase our faith, right? The apostles said, you got to be kidding. Jesus, that's, that's crazy. That's nuts. For those of you who know my wife, you will not be surprised that every Sunday at the end of the 11 o'clock service, she tells me, Brian, that was your best sermon ever. <laughs> right? right? If you know her, that, that's who my wife is. You know, the wonderful thing about it is she really means it. Right from the depths of her heart, she is speaking what she believes to be truth, which probably isn't, right? I mean, because every sermon doesn't just get better every week, and I know that. You know, so what I'm saying is this morning, this might be my best sermon ever. <laughs> At least in her mind it will be, or on the other hand, it might not. I mean, I'll let you be the judge. You may get to the end and go, no, not really. That's okay. <laughs> but I, I promise you this. For some of you, this is the most important sermon that I will give. Because for some of you, you have been really deeply wronged and you have wrestled and struggled for years and years and years with forgiveness. And so this morning, the Spirit of God really needs to, to penetrate. It's very important for you. And there may be, may be some of you who you don't wrestle with forgiveness at all. So my word of encouragement for you this morning is um, it's going to happen to you, so just take notes. <laughs> right? Because we will all be wounded in such a way that we have to learn how to forgive. So Jesus started this topic, he really introduced it in the book of Matthew, in the Sermon on the Mount. He said, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Pray then in this way, forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. This is a really uh, frequent topic, uh, introduced in the Sermon on the Mount, but really throughout Jesus' interaction with his disciples especially, but also with the crowds. So I want you to turn with me to Matthew chapter 18, because he really develops this topic a bit more fully in Matthew chapter 18. We're going to begin reading in verse 21. Matthew 18, verse 21. Then Peter came and he said to Jesus, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times? And Jesus said to him, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to 70 times seven. Now, a little cultural background helps here. 
Uh, the rabbis taught that you should forgive a person two times. Right? If they wrong you, forgive them. If they wrong you a second time, forgive them. Maybe three, never four. Okay? Really, this is in writing. Maybe three, never four. So when Peter comes and he says, Jesus, I'm willing to go up to seven times, right? It's a very typical Peter. He's like, I'm willing to go above and beyond. I will go so far as seven times, Jesus. That's really impressive, isn't it? And Jesus says, Peter, you're you're not even in the ballpark, right? I say to you 70 times seven. So is Jesus then saying, when you hit 491, you're done? (laughs) No, that's not what he's saying. What he's saying is, forgiveness should be limitless, Forgiveness should be unbounded. And so Jesus is going to go on. He's going to tell a parable to help Peter understand how often he should forgive. In order to help Peter understand how often he should forgive, he's going to start by showing Peter how deeply he is in need himself of forgiveness. All right, so let's read in verse 23. For this reason... The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his slaves. When he'd begun to settle them, one who owed him 10,000 talents was brought to him. But since he did not have the means to repay, his Lord commanded him to be sold along with his wife and children and all that he had and repayment to be made. So the slave fell to the ground and prostrated himself before him, saying, Have patience with me and I will repay you everything. And the Lord of that slave felt compassion and released him. And forgave him the debt. And notice in verse 23, Jesus says, This is a, a parable about the kingdom of heaven. It's a parable about the kingdom of heaven, which means God, our Heavenly Father, He is the King, and Jesus is His chosen ruler under Him. And as such, Jesus has the authority to interpret and explain this is how life works within the kingdom. Right? This is how life works. Uh, works within God's sovereign realm. And this in particular is how forgiveness works within God's sovereign realm as a reflection of the king, the great king, God our heavenly father. It's a reflection of his personality. And Jesus' intention is that Peter and that we would see ourselves in one of these characters in the parable, particularly in the character of the slave that needs forgiveness. And the first point is this. We are as slaves of the king, graciously forgiven. Now I want you to notice here how much the slave owes. The slave owes, verse 24, 10,000 talents. Now this is one of the most important features of the story. It's a detail that really is critical to understanding Jesus' point. So let me put it in perspective for you. A denarius is one day's wage. So what a, a common worker could earn in a single day was a denarius. A talent was 6,000 denarii. A, a talent was uh, the largest denomination, so to speak. 10,000 is the Greek word myriad. That is the largest number in Greek. So that's the word for which we have the, the, the largest number. 10,000 talents is then 60 million days wages or 300 tons of silver. Now, to put that in perspective, 10,000 talents probably represented more than the entire annual income of the king, perhaps more than all the actual coinage that was in circulation in the nation of Egypt at that time. In the vernacular, Jesus is saying he owes a gazillion dollars, right? I mean, when they heard this, it just, 
it absolutely blew them away. Jesus used the, the largest words, the largest numerals, said, this is how much the man owes. He owns gazillions, zillions of billions and trillions of dollars. This is what the man owes. That's his debt to the king. So what is uh, the recourse? Well, the recourse, we're told in verse 25, since he did not have the means to repay clearly beyond what he could ever earn in millions of lifetimes, his Lord commanded him to be sold along with his wife and children and all that he had in repayment to be made. So again, let me put this uh, in perspective. Uh, A really, really, really valuable slave was probably worth one talent. The average slave was worth a tenth of a talent. So if this man had eight children, he, his wife, and the eight children together would make up one talent. And this is within the owner's rights. He can sell the slave, but even if he sells the slave, he can't recover the debt. This is the point Jesus is trying to make. He can't recover the debt. He has to absorb the debt. And so he forgives graciously, abundantly, in his his deep kindness. The owner absorbs the debt. First principle, forgiveness is always costly to the forgiver. Forgiveness is always costly to the forgiver. To the forgiver. The king absorbs the debt. The money is gone. He can't get the money back. He absorbs the debt himself. Forgiveness is costly. We are forgiven graciously. Second, we are forgiven freely. Verse 26 says, The slave fell down to the ground and he prostrated himself before him, saying, Have patience with me and I will repay you everything. Literally, it says, Falling therefore, the slave bowed down to the ground and he made a promise I will repay. But he can't repay, it's a completely empty promise. But he's broken and he's humble and he falls down and he promises, but the king forgives him not because he's made promises. The king forgives him because we're told the king is moved with compassion. That is, his inner parts have sympathy and mercy and compassion and kindness. In other words, the king forgives because that's who the king is. Not because the slave deserves it. Not because the slave can repay. And we make promises all the time to the Lord, don't we? And I won't do it again, but we will. And we're forgiven. Why? Because that's what God is like. So the king himself absorbs the debt. The king himself forgives and releases the debt. He writes it off. Why? Because that's who he is. He takes the payment upon himself. This is the essence of the very gospel message. We see in 1 Peter chapter 2, it says, He himself, that is Jesus, bore our sins in his body on the cross. Right? Our sins, his body. Our sins, his body. Not, Not his sins. He had committed no sins. Our sins, his body. He took the debt upon himself. Jesus absorbed our obligation to God. Because we couldn't repay it, no matter how much we promised that we would repay it, or that at least we would stop accruing debt. But we can't. Right, men and women, that's the gospel message. This has already been done for us. Jesus has already absorbed our debt. So the moment that we believe, we're just taking advantage of a payment that's already been made on our behalf. We're saying to God, thank you for absorbing my debt, which I could not repay. And this is what we have to understand. We do owe a debt to God. The wages of sin, we're told, is death. It's separation. 
And we will be separated unless we allow Christ's separation from the Father and his death to be the payment for our sins. We are forgiven freely. Why? Because the king values us. Just absorb that for a moment. God, who's the creator of the universe, who gets to declare what everything is worth because he made everything, says, you are so valuable You are worth the life of my son. That's how valuable you are. That's what God declares. Why do we wrestle with uh, insecurities and poor self-esteem when the creator of the universe says, you are this valuable to me and my evaluation is the only evaluation that ever matters at all in all of history throughout the entire universe and I say, you're worth this much. I love you so much, I value you so much, I will give what is most valuable to me, which is the life of my son. Now there's a corollary to that. God values that much the people who wound you. And God values that much the people that you wound. And he's declared they're that valuable. In other words, he's forgiven you this tremendous debt so that you can turn around And forgive others. Read with me again Matthew chapter 18, verse 28. But that slave went out and he found one of his fellow slaves who owed him a hundred denarii. And he seized him and he began to choke him, saying, Pay back what you owe. So his fellow slave fell to the ground, began to plead with him, saying, Have patience with me and I will repay you. But he was unwilling and went through him in prison until he should pay back what he owed. So when his fellow slaves saw what had happened, they were deeply grieved and they came and reported to their Lord all that had happened. Then summoning him, his Lord said to him, You wicked slave, I forgave you all that debt just because you pleaded with me. Should you not also have had mercy on your fellow slave? In the same way that I had mercy on you. And his Lord moved with anger, handed him over to the torturers until he should repay all that he was owed him. My heavenly Father will also do the same to you if each of you does not forgive his brother from his heart. Yikes. (laughs) Remember, it's a parable about about the kingdom. This is what God is like, and this is how... God wants forgiveness to work within his kingdom as a reflection of his character. And we're, we're, we're supposed to see ourselves in the slave. And, you know, we go, okay, okay, I can see myself in the first part. I owe a debt that's that great. But then as the story goes on, I realize, well, that slave is actually really not a very good guy at all. Because he's forgiven a debt that he can never repay. But he's unwilling to forgive others. Right? And he's only owed 100 denarii, three or four months' wages. And what's happening here is probably the slave is a, a tax collector, okay? a servant tax collector for the king, and he's entered into this obligation. He's taken out loans or he hasn't met his quotas, and it's built up tremendously, and he can't repay. And he's got fellow slaves who are also tax collectors. And so three to four months' salary or wages collected is, is actually something that's surmountable. He, this other slave could have repaid it, but instead, since he can't repay immediately, what does he do? Well, he creates this scene. I mean, it's very graphic. It says, pay me what I owe. And he's going, ah, and he's choking the guy. I mean, really, he's got his hands around his neck, and he's choking him. And when he can't repay, he says, all right, you, I'm, you're, you're in prison, which he is within his rights to do. He is within his rights to do. But that's not how he has been treated. 
right? And the, de- the, the design of the parable is so that we would see ourselves that way as people who've been forgiven this tremendous debt, but are often unwilling to turn around and release others of a debt that isn't quite as great. So, question is this, why must we learn to forgive? Why must we learn to forgive? I want to give you a couple of reasons. First, to avoid torment. Now, this is probably the most shocking part of the parable. I expect that you uh, picked up on it as we hit verse 34. Let's read it again. It says, His Lord was moved with anger, and he handed him over to the torturers until he should repay all that was owed him. My heavenly Father will also do the same to you if each of you does not forgive his brother from your heart. Well, Jesus said actually a very similar thing in uh, the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew chapter 6 says, If you forgive others their transgressions, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others, then your heavenly Father will not forgive your, tra- your transgressions. Is he saying, if you don't forgive, you can't e- have eternal life? No, that's not what he's saying at all. Right? This is not about earning salvation through forgiving others. This is not about loss of salvation if you're unwilling to forgive. There are two words that I want you to notice uh, at the end here in this parable. The first is this. Verse 35, he says, if each of you does not forgive his brother from your heart. This entire section, beginning in chapter 18, verse 1, is about uh, the community of followers. It's it's about disciples and relationships among the body. You know, your brother uh, errs, he sins, go and rebuke him privately, then take two or three, then do so in public. Why? To restore that one to fellowship. And now Peter turns and he says, if my brother sins against me, that is one of the fellow band. In Peter's mind, he may have actually been thinking of one of the 12 because they were always knocking heads. But he's talking about life within the community of fellow believers. So let me make a distinction here between relationship and fellowship, right? Or relationship and intimacy, If you have believed in Jesus Christ, you are brought into the family of God. God is your heavenly father. Christ is your brother. He is your savior. And you are brothers and sisters with one another. And once you're in the family of God, he's adopted you in. He has ransomed you. He's paid the price, taking you out of slavery into freedom and life in his family. You always belong to the family of God. And you can't be taken out of the family of God. Why? Because the father is faithful to guard and protect you. 1 John chapter 2, verse 12 says this, I'm writing to you, little children, because your sins have been forgiven you for his name's sake. John says, you are the children of God. Your sins have been. Notice the, the verbal tense here is really critical. Your sins have been forgiven. Freely. It was a gift. Now you're in the family of God. You can't lose that. But you may not enjoy relationships with the family of God and you may not enjoy a relationship with the Father if you are unwilling to forgive. That is why John says earlier in 1 John chapter 1, verse 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Well, if my sins have been forgiven in Jesus, why do I need to continually ask that my sins be forgiven today? Well, because your sins have been forgiven and through that 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 transaction, you were brought into the family of God, but now that you're in the family of God, you're not always going to get along with your brothers and sisters. And you're not always going to get along with your heavenly father. And so day in and day out, you're going to have to go to the father and say, please forgive me. Please restore fellowship. Please restore intimacy. And the moment that you do, he is faithful because he promised and he's righteous because he already paid for it in Jesus 
to forgive your sins and to cleanse you, present tense, from all unrighteousness so that you can be restored to intimacy of relationship. So he's not talking about earning salvation through forgiveness of others or losing salvation because you are unwilling to forgive others. So what is he talking about? Well, the word that probably caught all of our attention there is uh, the word torturers, right? He will hand you over to the, to the torturers. What's he talking about? Well, you know, literally in uh, Jesus' day, there were uh, professionals, professional torturers. If someone owed you a debt, you had a right either to, to send them to prison or if the debt was even greater and you had more authority, you could turn them over to these pros who would put you into hard labor and you'd have sleepless nights and you'd have little food and drink and they would physically abuse you until you, or hopefully in a sense it's almost like extortion, a family member would kick in and get you out of this horrible situation. So what's he talking about? He's not talking about hell. What he's talking about is the suffering that we bring on ourselves if we refuse to forgive. It is torture. And if you've ever known anyone who refuses to forgive, then you know what Jesus is talking about. That person's soul just begins to shrink. They become angry, they become bitter, and it begins to affect all of their relationships. Not just the the one that they refuse to forgive, but all of their relationships because internally they are tortured. Uh, For a couple of years when I first moved back here to uh, College Station, I would go and I would preach every week at a nursing home. And I did that for about two years. And I got to know uh, all of the residents. And I made an observation. There were only two categories of residents. There were bitter residents and there were joyful residents. That's it. They were bitter or they were joyful. And as I learned their stories, what I discovered is it really didn't matter what their life circumstances had been in the past. And it really didn't matter the level of their current suffering right now, whether they were bitter or joyful. What determined whether they were bitter or joyful is all these little choices that they made along the way to give thanks and be grateful and to God for what they had or to be angry and frustrated and bitter when people wronged them. They would cling to it and they would nurse it or they would let it go and they would grow. And I saw some people who were in in some of the most uh, difficult circumstances physically and even mentally who were, who were joyful, kind, life-giving people, even in the midst of their own suffering in a nursing home. And then others who had suffered relatively little, but, boy, they were just shriveling from the inside out. They were people who'd given themselves over, in a sense, to the torturers. And whenever I think about this topic, I always feel compelled to share this quote from Frederick uh, Buchner. It's from a, a short work he did. It's called Wishful Thinking. And he takes different theological subjects. In one chapter, he talks about forgiveness, and he says this. Of the seven, seven deadly sins, anger is possibly the most fun. <laughs> to lick your wounds, to smack your lips over grievances long past, to roll over your tongue the prospect of bitter confrontations still to come. To savor to the last toothsome morsel, both the pain you are given and the pain you are giving back. In many ways, it is a feast fit for a king. The chief drawback is that what you are wolfing down is yourself. The skeleton at the feast is you. Or as Paul said in Galatians 5, but if you bite and devour one another, take care lest you be consumed by one another. 
One commentator, Lewis Smead, said to forgive is to set a prisoner free and to discover that the prisoner was you. To forgive is to set a prisoner free and to discover that the prisoner was you. So notice what Jesus says here in verse 35. My heavenly father will do this also to you if each of you does not forgive his brother from your heart. What did we talk about? Genuine righteousness last week. It's, It's from the heart. If you pretend to forgive, that bitterness will leak out and be obvious in all of your relationships. So, why must we learn to forgive? Because we don't want to be tormented people. We don't want to be bitter, shriveled up people. We don't want that to overtake our lives. Second, we must learn to forgive so that we can represent our Heavenly Father. Again, this is a parable about, we're told, uh, the kingdom of heaven. This is what the kingdom of heaven is like. Why? Because this is what the king is like. This is what heaven is like, where he rules completely, and he wants to bring heaven to earth through us. So, as he said, Jesus says in Luke chapter 6, be merciful, just like your heavenly father is merciful. Mercy means God doesn't give to us what we deserve. He doesn't. Because he's kind and he's compassionate. In fact, why does the king forgive in the parable? Because promises are made? No, because the king is moved in his inward parts. Because that's who the king is. He's compassionate. In fact, you're going to see this throughout the gospel of Matthew. It says over and over and over again, Jesus looks out upon the people and he has compassion. He's moved inside of himself. He has compassion on sheep who are without a shepherd. He has compassion on those who are downtrodden. He's compassionate toward those who are broken in their lives physically but also spiritually. Spiritually, he has compassion. That's what God is like. And so why has God forgiven us? Well, one of the reasons is certainly because we are so incredibly valuable to him, but also because those who wrong us are valuable to him. And through us, they can experience the very forgiveness of God, maybe in a way that they've never seen ever in their lives before. So as Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, you're told, love your brothers and hate your enemies. But I say to you, Love your enemies. Do good. Pray for them. Why? Because this is what your heavenly father is like. You want to be sons and daughters? You want to reflect the family name and the family character? Well, he causes his reign to to fall on the just and the unjust. The sun shines on the just and the unjust because that's what he is like. So when we forgive, we participate with him and we we live in a way that's consistent with his character because this is who God is is. So how do we learn to forgive? Let me give you some practical ideas. How do we learn to forgive? First step is this. Remember your own debt. This is the starting place. Jesus told uh, Peter a parable. It's in Luke chapter 7, I think. He says there's there's a money lender, and one man owed the money lender 500 denarii. Another owed him 50 denarii, and he forgave them both. He says, Peter, which one do you think loved him more? And he says, well, probably the one who who owed more. He says, yeah, but here's really the principle is you owe more than you can pay back. And you got to get to the point where you really understand that. And I think for church people often, you know, for, especially those of you who were raised in Christian homes, it's hard for you to get to the point where you really deeply understand the debt that you owe to God. So, because you're, you're morally a bit better than lots of people around you, at least as far as you know, right? You know, well, my debt is not as great. But your debt is completely adequate to separate you from God for all eternity. That's the debt that you owe because God is absolutely and perfectly holy. Remember your debt. 
Colossians chapter 3, Paul wrote, Bear with one another and forgive each other. Whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. Literally, when he says bear with one another, it's put up with each other. You're not always going to like each other, but you need to forgive each other. Even when you have a complaint, even a complaint that's legitimate. Why? Because you have been forgiven so much. So just as you were forgiven, graciously, freely, a debt that you couldn't repay, now turn around and release others from the debt as well. Now, I want you to note this. We forgive not because forgiveness is deserved. For those of you who are really wrestling with forgiveness right now, Man, mark this down. We, we don't forgive others because they deserve forgiveness. In fact, I would argue real forgiveness doesn't even kick in until you get to the undeserved part. Right, so let's say I, I, I owe Tim $100 and then I, I, I haven't paid and I haven't paid and he's getting pretty frustrated with me, pretty bitter. It's like, man, I texted you 12 times. Pay up $100 now, right? Well, I come up with the money. I go, Here you go, Tim. I paid the debt. Tim's not forgiving me now. There's no more debt. So it's not like he's forgiving me or releasing me from the debt. I paid off the debt. The debt's gone. But Tim might have some some, uh, bitterness that's a little residual in his heart. Now forgiveness. Now now that's kicking in, right? Forgiveness is not deserved. Forgiveness is that that part that's, that's undeserved. It's never deserved. It only kicks in really when the person owes something. So there's a financial debt, I paid it off, but then there's this residual emotional debt that there's really nothing I can do. I can't, I can't make up for that. And now Tim begins to learn about forgiveness. We don't even forgive because forgiveness is requested. And the other person may never even acknowledge that they've done wrong or request forgiveness from us. We forgive because, in a sense, really forgiveness is, is mostly between us and the Lord, first and foremost. And we forgive because we've, we've been forgiven. That's, that's the starting place for us. Second, release the debt to a just judge. Forgiveness means we release the debt to God. Forgiveness means we acknowledge that ultimately the debt is owed, not just to us, but it's really it's owed to God. Peter says, 1 Peter chapter 2, While being reviled, Jesus did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but he kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. He said, Father, you deal with this. Father, forgive them. Father, you you get justice for me. And Peter will go on in chapter 4 and he'll say, Now, when you are suffering and you will suffer, entrust your souls to a faithful creator in doing what is right. We want mercy. So let's be merciful and say, God, I trust you to know the best form of justice because you are perfectly just. So I, it's, it's not like I, I pretend there is no debt. It's that I turn it over to a divine collection agency. Right? And I say, God, you take care of this debt and you take care of it perfectly and righteously because I trust you. You're going to be better at it. You're going to take just what is required and just what is necessary. And so I release the debt to a just judge. Now, there are actually three words for forgiveness in, in Greek, or three words that are used in the New Testament. You see two of them actually in chapter 18, verse 27. It says, the Lord of that slave felt compassion and he released him, that's forgiveness, and he forgave him, that's forgiveness, from the debt. 
And both of these words have this idea of of letting something go, sending it away, setting a prisoner free. That's the primary meaning of of the Hebrew word as well. You you let it go. You send it away. Well, where do you send it? Do you pretend that no wrong was done? No, you send it to a just judge. And you recognize God is paying attention to all of these things and he will get the right, perfect form of justice. I leave it to him. I leave it to him. Now, let me just say this. In this process, remember, forgiveness and trust are not the same thing. Forgiveness and reconciliation are not the same thing. I can release the debt, but I still might not trust that person. Because there will be people who have wounded you and wronged you who actually aren't trustworthy. Trust is something that's earned, it's earned slowly, and it's really fragile. It's easy to break. And there will be people who who wound you in your life that if you get really close to them again, they will continue to wound you. And they will continue to hurt. They will continue to take. Because this is the pattern and you see it and it's unbroken. And you still have to release those old wounds to a just judge, remembering that you yourself have been forgiven a very great debt. But you may say, "I, I also have to create some boundaries here in this relationship. It would be unwise for me to move any closer than this. That's just, that's wisdom, right? Forgiveness and reconciliation are two different things. Forgiveness and trust are two different things. If you're going to reconcile with someone, there's got to be movement. There's got to be change. And so I'm not saying to you that everyone that you forgive, you will also be able to learn to trust and learn to reconcile. I'm not saying that that that's humanly possible. But I do want to challenge you. Because one of the reasons that we refuse to forgive is fear. And I, can't, I don't know the specifics of any of your situations, but I know right now a lot of you are thinking about your own situations as we talk about forgiveness. And I don't know the specifics. So I don't know if this applies to you or not, but I do want to challenge you. So often we will not forgive because we are fearful. And it may be this morning that the Lord is saying to you, I want you to take a step of trust. I want you to take a step toward reconciliation. I want, to make, I want you to make yourself just a little bit vulnerable, trusting me to protect you. I don't know if that's applicable to your life. There may be a person that you, you should not, in fact, ever trust. Or it may be that the Lord is saying, I've got you. Take a little step. Just take a little step toward reconciliation. Second principle, release the debt. Third, Seize the opportunity. Seize the opportunity. You will be wronged. You will be hurt in this life. You will be. And your response may create an opportunity for someone to see Jesus. They they don't really have have the capacity to, to understand and really absorb the reality of an unseen God and a Savior who lived 2,000 years ago. But when they wrong you and then they experience forgiveness through you, they actually understand what God is like. This is an opportunity. The wound feels incredibly personal, but it's really ultimately a wound against God. And God, through us, can help them learn to experience forgiveness in a way that they can't otherwise, except through us. There's a woman named Marganita Lasky. She was a, a journalist, novelist, uh, English. She was a really well-known secular humanist in her day. And shortly before her death, 
1988, she said this, what I envy most about you Christians is your forgiveness. I have nobody to forgive me. So maybe, maybe that's you in your relationship. And there's an opportunity for redemption, to extend redemption as I have been forgiven freely, graciously. I give it to someone else and they go, wow, I can't get that anywhere else in the world but you. It's an opportunity to grow and change, to become that kind of person. Because at the end of our lives, we want to be that kind of person. We don't want to be the person who's holding on to all these wounds. We want to be the person who's free. Right? Not a prisoner, not chained down, but open. Giving and giving and giving and giving. Even when people are taking and taking, we're, we're, we're still giving. We're those kind of people. Mary Karen Reed said this, Forgiveness doesn't change the past, but it does enlarge the future. Right? We're not pretending that the wounds didn't happen. We're not changing the past, but it enlarges the future because we are changed as we forgive. We become people like God. This is what God is like. So, if mentally we can say this is actually an opportunity, it hurts, but it's also a gift from God for me to extend forgiveness and to show people Jesus, to be changed, to be grown up, to be like my Savior. Fourth, give grace. Give grace. The third Greek word is, uh, for forgiveness is charizomai. It's from the same root as the word charis. Right? Grace. So grace is not just I release the debt, right? But there's more to forgiveness. Forgiveness is also that I turn around and I find ways to bless, right? I don't say to you, love your friends and your family and people are good to you and then hate your enemies. I say actually, love your enemies. That's grace. I try to figure out ways to do good, even if I can't fully trust that person and engage at the same level in a relationship, I can still seek their best. That's grace. Lewis Smedes wrote, you will know that forgiveness has begun when you recall those who hurt you and you feel the power to wish them well. Or you remember those who've hurt you and you have the power to wish them well. That is power. Now, the irony is this. If you choose not to forgive, then that other person maintains power over you, right? If you choose not to forgive, then that person still has power over you. I've known people who are, who are angry and bitter at someone who died 20 years ago. They're, they are dead and in the grave, and yet they still have power because they've been unwilling to release the debt. But when you release the debt and you're actually able to turn around and to want good for that other person, right? that's why Jesus says, Love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. Pray. Pray for uh, God to bring blessing in their lives. Pray for God to move them and change them. Look for those opportunities for reconciliation. Look for opportunities to do good, to serve. When, when you move to that point, so not just releasing the debt, but showing grace, right? that's, that's deep, deep, deep and abiding forgiveness. Fifth principle, repeat. Repeat, right? Wash, rinse, repeat. Do it over. Do it again. Practice makes perfect, right? No, no, no. It doesn't. It doesn't. Uh, as we used to tell the kids when I was coaching in basketball, practice makes permanent. Practice doesn't make perfect. Practice makes permanent. So when you think about the debt, if you rehearse what's owed to you, you're making that permanent. You know, and you know, you know what I'm talking about, especially those who you've got that person in your mind, you've got that debt in your mind, and there's just something in you that you're going, 
Okay, just imagine, I mean, if I was walking out and they just happened to be coming to the 11 o'clock service, what I would say to that person, I wouldn't say anything, but the look that I would give them, they would know exactly what I'm thinking. I would punish them. I would punish them so deeply. They would feel, and they would, oh, they would feel so guilty and low and small. You know, in your mind, you're going, just imagining the words or the looks, or whatever, even things that are impossible to ever take place, right? Even that person who's been dead for 20 years, ah, if they came out of the grave, I know what I'd say to them, right? Or, you know, if I just happened to be on safari and they intersected me in the airport in Kenya, I know what I, I mean, you just imagine these just crazy fanciful ideas that are never going to happen and you're rehearsing them in your mind and you know what that becomes permanent because practice makes permanent which reveals another principle about forgiveness it's not ever in an instant it doesn't happen if you're wounded really deeply you're not going to just tomorrow go I forgive and I'm done you're going to forgive and then Satan is you're going to release that debt and you're going to remember what you you owe to to the Lord yourself and how he forgave you and you're going to remember that and then you're going to turn around and five seconds later Satan's going to go Boom, and bring the memory back. Remember what they owe you. Remember what they owe you. And, and you're going to have to practice this maybe every 30 seconds or every three minutes or four times a day, or maybe it, it goes a little longer and it goes a week or a month, and then you're going to have to go through this again. You repeat, repeat, you repeat, you repeat, you repeat. Right? And you build that skill of forgiveness. You become a forgiving person. I love this quote by Clara Barton. She was the founder of the American Red Cross. And one time somebody came up to her and they reminded her of a very cruel thing that had been done to her. And it appeared that she had forgotten. This person said, well, don't you remember it? And her response was this, I distinctly remember forgetting it. (laughs) Did she forget it, forget it? No, she didn't forget it, forget it. But she distinctly remembered releasing the debt. So application. Um, at the risk of stirring things up, I want you to think about somebody who, who owes you a debt that they, they can't repay. And I want, you to, I want you to think through these steps. And, you know, if um, you can't think of anyone, I say, man, praise God, you're better than the rest of us. Way to go. Way to go. Um, or maybe you just haven't been wronged that, that deeply, but, but you will be. So, you know, maybe just, just focus on point number one this week and allow gratitude to kind of wash over your heart that you've been forgiven so deeply. On the other hand, if you have been wounded, I want you to, I want you to uh, walk through these uh, in your heart and your mind. I want you to write them down, and I want you to practice that this week. And not just once, but each and every time. Satan tempts you to hold on to a debt. I want you to release it so that we can become this kind of people, just like our Heavenly Father, who loves enemies. Jesus, who hangs on a cross and says, Father, forgive them. Father, release them from the debt. Father, shower grace upon them. Father, bless them so that they can be one with us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that your spirit would profoundly empower us this week to be people who forgive. And church, I want to encourage you, if if there's a debt you're really battling to release, uh, if you would like someone to pray with you, we always have people up front after the service. We'd love to pray with you and for you to experience uh, really God's transforming power, the freedom of letting these uh, debts go. Please don't, don't hold back. Let someone pray with you and for you, or maybe not this morning, but call a friend and say, this, I really feel challenged by the Spirit, and I need to move forward in this, this area and release the debt 
Let's become that kind of people so that people can see what God is like through us. Father, I thank you for the, the debt that you remove from us in Jesus. I thank you that you, you say we're that valuable, even though we don't often feel that valuable. But you say we are. We're worth the life of your son. I thank you for declaring that. And I pray that we would live in that gratitude and as a result, knowing that we are so rich and wealthy, even when people take from us, they can't take that from us. Because that's a gift from you. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. God bless you. Have a great week forgiving. We'll see you next week.